0: of your Bibles, please take them and turn to the book of Luke chapter 24. If you are warm, feel free to take off a sweater or a blazer or anything. Else. It's hot in here in the summer and it's hot in the winter too, isn't it? They switched over to heat, so slowly we'll figure this out. But uh, Luke chapter 24. And we will be in verses 50 through 53, if you can believe it. So we are finishing up Luke right at around three years we've been here in this book. But if you're sad to see Luke go, we'll be in Luke next week. Uh, We're going to do sort of a summary. I thought, you know, three years in Luke, we deserve to give it sort of a a summary to try to understand what have we, where have we, how have we grown as a church? What has God taught us in the past three years? Um, And so I'd like to just sort of reflect on that um, and and think through that. So I would encourage you, if you would like to read through the book of Luke, it's 24 chapters. It doesn't divide well by seven, but it divides well by eight, doesn't it? So if you divide that by eight, how many chapters a day? Three, starting today, if we read three chapters today and every day this week until Sunday, then we could read through the whole uh, book of Luke at just three chapters a day. And that might be a good exercise for us as we sort of bring this book to a close. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, I was going to make up this great plan, but that's a lot easier, isn't it? Just three chapters a day. Um, it'll be a bear at the beginning. Chapter one is long, uh, but once you get through that, it'll it'll uh, pan out. So I encourage you to do that this week. But we'll, we'll consider the final verses of Luke this morning and then the entire book next week. There's a, a website. I don't know if you've seen this. It's called The Art of Manliness. Have you ever seen this website? It's sort of funny and comical, and yet... Uh, in their words, they say that they're trying to recover the lost art of manliness. And so they have all these articles. Some are serious and some are comical. They have things about how to dress for fall all the way to an illustrated guide for how to get out of the trunk of a car if you happen to get locked in there. Um, and so it's it's this quirky corner of the Internet. But I, in, in looking for some stuff, I actually stumbled upon up a series of articles with titles like how to Enter a Room Like a Boss, that's what it was titled, or Command a Room Like a Man, or How to Exit a Room. And, and most of these things are common sense, but it's its interesting in our culture that some of these things need to be taught. Uh, how do you enter a room? How, how do you exit a place when it's time to go? And uh, most of that hopefully makes sense to some of us, but there's some that need to a little a few pointers on this. But as I was looking at these, I believe it or not, I thought about, Luke 24. And I thought, you know, if anyone has ever entered a room like a boss, it's Jesus in Luke 24, where he just sort of walks through the the wall, as it were, and enters in. He didn't even open the door. And when the disciples saw him, didn't he command the room in that moment? He's, he's there. He's in control. And today we're going to see how he exits. And as he exits, he reveals his power and his authority and he fills the disciples with worship and with with joy even at his departure. In the same way for us as we think about this final day of Jesus on earth the ascension of Jesus leads us to worship and joy. That's our big thought the ascension of Jesus. So when I say ascension that's that's the word that we use for when Jesus exited the earth by by arising into the air and disappearing into the clouds, the ascension of Jesus leads us to worship and joy. We don't often think about the ascension. We do focus on the cross heavily, the resurrection probably even less than the the cross, but then the ascension, how many times have we ever really deeply thought about what's the, the theological and practical significance of the ascension of Jesus? We're going to look at that and try to think, how does that apply to my everyday life? We read about the past acts of Jesus. We read about the future acts of, of Jesus. And yet we live in the present, right? So we've got to figure out how do these things that have happened in the past or that will happen in the future impact my life now. And I hope that we'll see that the ascension of Jesus fills us with worship and with joy. So let's jump right in and read this. Uh, we won't read just verses 50 through 53, but let's pick up the context at verse 44. If you remember, um, we had studied, the. they were on the road to Emmaus. This is the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the two men on the road to Emmaus came back to the upper room where they found out that Peter had also seen Jesus. And then Jesus appears in the room. And last week we saw how he shows his hands and his feet and proves that he truly had risen from the dead and that his body was a physical body. And so then after they, he makes that very clear, he begins to teach in verse 44 Let's pick it up there to the end of the book. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. What a scene, huh? So imagine what that was like. But before we get into that in, in detail, let's think about um, this the sort of final acts of of Jesus that that lead us to, to worship and joy. And I just want to consider sort of the the timeline of what's going on, because it can get a little confusing. This, these last days before Jesus ascends, it's it's a little tough, especially when you start to bring in outside information into the gospel. It can make sense on the page here, but when we start to compile things, it gets a little confusing. So in Luke 24, all of these events occur on Sunday. This is the the day of Jesus' resurrection. They all occur within one day, the day that Jesus was resurrected. So due, two days prior would it be, Friday, what we often call Good Friday. Um, on that day, uh, Jesus is tried early in the morning. He's condemned to death. He's crucified from noon to three o'clock. He's taken down from the cross, you remember, by Joseph of Arimathea and others who helped. And he would be buried before the sun set that day. So he's in the tomb on Friday. Then the women, according to the commandment, rest. They don't go to the tomb and, and take the spices. They rest. And Jesus is in the tomb all day. Saturday. Sunday would begin, according to the Jewish accounting of days, it would begin at the the sunset on Saturday. So Sunday then carries on and the women arrive uh, Sunday morning. Remember that this is all happening during the feast of the Passover as well. So that's sort of the, the timeline. So when we pick up the story in Luke 24, the women arrive Sunday morning to the empty tomb. And if you start to bring in other things, to be completely honest, and we always want to be completely honest, there's nothing that we're trying to hide about Scripture. If you start to try to put the different accounts of Matthew and Mark and John together with Luke, it gets confusing. Where is Jesus? When is he appearing? Who is he appearing to? Who is with him when he appears to different people? And it, it's it's tough. Now, I want to say that at the, at the get-go. So in Matthew, the emphasis is on go to Galilee. It's all, all the time Jesus keeps saying, I will meet you in Galilee. Galilee. In John, he's in Galilee, but he's also meeting Mary outside of the tomb. In Matthew, he meets the women as they're on the way back from the tomb. In Luke, there's no appearance to the women that's mentioned. Now, I say all that not to confuse us, but because I want to say that I don't think it undermines the historicity or the assurance that we can have of the resurrection, but it lets us peek a little bit into how the gospel writers are writing. They have a specific purpose. Now, when we think about history, we think about it in certain terms. If I wrote a book of history and that's how things mesh together, no one would read it. But as they're writing, they're writing with both a historical eye, but also with a theological eye. Luke says, I compiled this narrative in an orderly way. I compiled it in a way because I wanted to teach you something. That doesn't take away from the truthfulness of the resurrection. It just means that things might seem a little different. And there's, there's ways to harmonize those things, and that I don't think it's an issue, but I, I think it's good to, to recognize it. So rather than getting into all the details, we see that according to, to Luke's account, the women arrive Sunday. They meet the angel, after which they return to the upper room. They tell the disciples Peter runs to the tomb as the, and sees it, as the women had reported. Then that afternoon, there's two men on the road to Emmaus that meet Jesus. Before that, Jesus met Peter. We know that he met Peter before the men on the road to Emmaus because uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to who first? To Peter. He appeared to Peter first. I love that. And then he appeared to these men on the road to Emmaus, and then he shows up in the room. Now, if you're just reading through the book of Luke, then what you would find in verse 50, it says, then he led them out as far as Bethany. Sounds like the same day, doesn't it? Sounds like the resurrection appearances and then the ascension would all have occurred on that Sunday. That would mean that it's the middle of the night, wouldn't it? I mean, granted, Jesus could have talked all night long, and he could have ascended in the morning. But the other problem that we have is that Luke wrote a second volume in the book, which is Acts, and in Acts, like we read, in Acts 1-3, it says that Jesus stuck around for how long? Forty days. He's on earth for forty days. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts. He knows those are different. He knows that there's a discrepancy there. But his purpose in Luke is different than his purpose in Acts. And so we know that, what's, that, that he's, he's, he's accurate historically and that he's also accurate theologically. He's telescoping is what people say. He's bringing these events together into one cohesive day and explaining what happened for a theological purpose. Now, if you have questions about how we put all these things together, I'd love to wrestle with that. Uh, with you. Um, I think it's good to wrestle with those things. But that all said, what we can what we can say for sure is that there's a gap at least between verses 49 and 50 of about forty days where Jesus is appearing to others. So this all doesn't happen within one day. And we know that from Matthew and John that Jesus and the disciples were in Galilee at some point during those forty days. So they had made that trip about three days to Galilee, That's where Jesus meets with Peter and the disciples on the beach, if you remember that wonderful story. That's in Galilee. That's on the the Sea of Galilee. And so he's there in Galilee, but we know that the ascension happens in Bethany, which is to the east of Jerusalem. They go to the Mount of Olives, and, and there is where Jesus ascends into the clouds. Then the disciples go back to the upper room and wait there for the coming of the Holy Spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost. This is the Jewish feast, and I'll try to say it, Shavuot, I think is how you say it, a Jewish festival that takes place 50 days after Passover. So Passover, Jesus is around for about 40 days, and then Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. Hopefully that's helpful. I know it's a lot of time, but, it's, but that's that's the way we got to wrestle with these things. And they are there... On Pentecost, waiting for the Spirit to come, and the Spirit descends on them. Let's let's think about the coming of the Spirit. I think it's a good place to pick it up, because in, in verse 49, we just touched on this last week, but it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. I love that phrase, the promise of my Father. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The promise of the Father and the power from on high is a reference to, to the Holy Spirit. And as we think about joy and worship, we can say this is that's our first kind of big point. The presence of the Spirit leads us to worship and joy. The presence of the Spirit leads us to worship and joy. Jesus, you remember, has just commissioned. He's sending the disciples out as witnesses of His life and His death and His resurrection. He's put in their mouths a message of repentance and of, of faith. And now He says that He's going to send the promise of His Father To them. The promise of the Spirit of God Himself. This is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned the promise of the Spirit. In fact, it's not the first time that anyone has mentioned the promise of the Spirit. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. There's a promise that the Spirit of God will come and be inside people, in their hearts. Peter quotes. Joel 2.28 on the day of Pentecost. And that verse promises this. God says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Isaiah 44.3 is another great text. It says similarly, I will For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. And my blessing on your descendants. This promise. Then the new covenant promises. Ezekiel 36, it says in there, I will sprinkle clean water on you. See this water theme? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So the Old Testament is pushing. The Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming. Then John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, shows up on the scene. And what's the big message he's giving? Everyone says, are you the Messiah? He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. And how does he distinguish the fact that he's not the Messiah? Luke three fifteen 15-16. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the promise keeps keeps coming that He's going to baptize. And even if, I, if you saw that in Acts one, he says Jesus it says um, that he John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the words of, of Jesus. He picks up on that. John 7, 37-39. Then Jesus picks up on the words of John and on this theme of water. On the last day, the great day of the feast. This is the feast where they would bring water each day and pour it on the altar for seven days. But on the last day, they brought no water as a, as a, a, a looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come. And on that last day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John's very clear. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus must be glorified before the Spirit is given. One more, Luke 11, 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. And now the resurrected Jesus comes and he tells his disciples that this long awaited promise from the Old Testament to John, to his own words, that it's coming. I love Acts 1. What does it say? You will be clothed with power when? Not many days from now. I mean, all of Old Testament history is pushing towards this, to the, the new covenant, the words of John, the words of Jesus, and he says, not many days now I love tracking packages when I order them you know how you get the packing the, the number UPS or or the postal service will give you this number and you just keep plugging it in and you can see where you're where you know whatever you ordered is even if it's something lame like we ordered diapers I just want to know where they're at because it's interesting to me a lot of times they sit in the warehouse for a long period of time and then suddenly they're they're out and then you have that moment where you click on it and what's it say out for delivery and it says it will arrive by 6 p.m. tonight or something like that. So you know you're getting it. I think about that, that God's people had, had waited and waited for this promise of the Spirit, for the inauguration of the new covenant, and now Jesus says that the Spirit is coming. The Spirit is out for delivery. It's going to show up soon. Not many days from now He will arrive. This is how the disciples can find joy with Jesus leaving. Because Him leaving marks the entrance of this new era of blessing and power of the presence of God with men and women. The people of God have always longed for the presence of God. Isn't that the big theme of the Old Testament? That God's presence would be with us. And now He says the Spirit is coming and will be with you always. Like the temple has physical limitations, Jesus could only be in one place at one time, even in His resurrected body, one place, one time, but when the Spirit comes, He will be with and even in all true believers simultaneously. The, the disciples, when they had this feeling of not wanting to Jesus, Jesus to leave, and, and they expressed that in, in the Book of John. They, they want Jesus to stay. They are saddened when He says He's going to leave. He says this in John 16:7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's good for me to go, because when I go, the Spirit can come. His going is good, because the coming of the Spirit is good. You know, Luke knows he's going to write Acts at this point. I, I'm I'm sure of it. He's setting things up, isn't he? He's getting ready for the coming of the Spirit. He's, he knows that it's this promise of the Father, because... If, if Luke is about the acts of Jesus, then acts, which is called the acts of the apostles, the things that the apostles did, it's really the acts of who? The Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the church, and he is setting things up. The Spirit's going to come with power, and we're going to see what he will do. If you've ever read the book of Acts, then you know about that era of power and authority that is ushered in with the coming of the Spirit. It picks right up where Jesus left off. So even with the coming ascension of Jesus, he, he is presenting the disciples and us through the gift of the Spirit, through the presence of the Spirit. He's, he's showing us that he is with us still. I, I even think about in this chapter, how else is he present? He's present through the word. Remember that on the road to Emmaus. He is in the word as, he, as they speak. As Jesus teaches from the Word, their hearts burn within them. He is present with us in His Word. And then how do they recognize Him? In the breaking of bread. Isn't the presence of Jesus with us even as we break bread together, as we remember the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? He's gone, but He's not far, is He? And His Spirit is within all who truly believe in Him. The presence of the Spirit fills us with worship and joy. I say all that, but don't we still want Jesus here? I mean, I I still want Jesus to be present. I want Jesus to to come back. I used to listen to this song more often than I do now, but I thought about it. Chris Rice uh, wrote a song, and the first line, he says, I heard about the day you went away. You said you had to go prepare a place. And even though I've never seen your face, I'm missing you isn't that, it kind of captures how we feel as believers we we've never seen jesus but we still miss him we we want to know his presence with us so we can find joy in the exit of jesus but there's still this longing for his presence we can rejoice at the giving of the spirit and yet we want to see christ and the ascension in some ways points to the fulfillment of that longing that we all have so Let's think secondly about this. The truths in the ascension lead us to worship and joy. The presence of the Spirit leads us to worship and joy, but now the, the truths of the ascension lead us to worship and joy. As hard as it must have been for the disciples to see Jesus depart, what is the feeling of these verses? I mean, they are filled with joy. It's all about blessing, he, lifting up his hands, Jesus blesses them. While he blessed them, he parted from them. And they worshiped. They returned to Jerusalem, how? With great joy. And they were in the temple praising God. They're filled with joy. But Jesus has just left. Yet they're filled with joy. How does that happen? Why, why are they still filled with this triumphant joy? Three reasons I'll give you. There's more, I'm sure. The, the first is this, the future that Jesus foreshadows the future that Jesus foreshadows i think a lot of this is seen in how jesus leaves what's he do stands on this mountain rises up into the air and disappears into a cloud he doesn't vanish like he had earlier he doesn't die his body doesn't stay either and his spirit depart his physical resurrected body lifts up into the air and disappears This is what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology. I found it very helpful. The narratives of the ascension describe an event that is clearly designed to show the disciples that Jesus went to a place. We might take that for granted, but that Jesus actually went to a specific place. He did not suddenly disappear from them, never to be seen by them again, but gradually ascended as they were watching. And then a cloud, which is probably the cloud of the glory of God, took him out of their sight. But the angels immediately said that he would come back in the same way he had gone into heaven. The fact that Jesus had a resurrection body and was subject to spatial limitations—it could, it could only be—it could be at only one place at one time—means that Jesus went somewhere when he ascended into heaven. Jesus went somewhere. So, so Jesus, in ascending, models John fourteen two to three when he says, "I'm going to prepare a place for you at my Father's house." and I will come again and take you to that place. He models, I'm going to a place, and I will come and get you. He shows them, watch me, I'm going to a place, I'm going to my Father. He foreshadows 1 1 Thessalonians 4.17, that when he returns, where will we meet him? In the air, we will ascend with him. We will meet him in the air, and there we will always be with the Lord forever. We know that that can happen because it happened for Jesus. He assures us that we will have a heavenly home. And he continues to exist in his resurrected body, reminding us that our hope is not to be disembodied spirits, but to be resurrected people who live in a physical world in physical bodies, that we will be like Christ. Amazing, isn't it? When Jesus humbled himself and took on the form of a man, he did it for all eternity. He will exist as a man forever in this resurrected body. This is the the hope that we have, the hope of being with the Father with Jesus of having resurrected bodies and this overflows in us with worship and joy. Yes, Jesus has gone, but he will come again and we will be with him forevermore. Isn't this our hope in death? As we think about uh, our brother Lola Benito, that 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 as Jesus ascended, so too one day we will all be resurrected and ascend and be with him. We will Be with him for all eternity. He went to a place to prepare it for us, and we will be with him. That's the future that Jesus foreshadows. We're also moved to worship and joy because of the power Jesus takes and gives. The power that Jesus takes and gives. As Jesus ascends, he is exalted and he is honored as he is supposed to be. He had humbled Himself in coming to earth, but when He leaves earth, He is exalted to the place that He is supposed to be. The disciples worship for the first time in the book of Luke at this moment because they now see Jesus clearly as the true and living God, the Creator of all things, the victor over death. And the Testament of the New Testament is that when Jesus ascends, where does He go? He goes to the right hand of the Father, to the place of power, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110. He sits down, at the right hand of the Father, meaning that he has fully and finally accomplished redemption for all of God's chosen children. He sits in a place of authority over all creation. This is what Ephesians 1:20 20 and 21 says, that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus is worthy of worship. He is exalted to his rightful place of honor and majesty in the ascension. He is God, and we are to worship Jesus. It should be the overflow of our hearts at the ascension, that we would worship him. He is not just some human being who lived. He is God, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, in a place of power. But we're also filled with joy because through faith, Get this, we are united to Jesus in his ascension. We often talk about how we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection. But we are united with Christ in all of his acts. We are united with him in his ascension and in his exaltation and glorification. Later in Ephesians, Ephesians 2.6 Paul is talking about our union with Christ and his death and resurrection, and then he says that God raised us up with him with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So we are given the spirit as Jesus leaves, but we are also seated at the right hand of God. We are given authority with Jesus. in this earth, in some measure, we have the authority of Christ, even as we live now. And we will one day reign with Christ over this whole universe. Union with Christ. This is our hope. This is the only hope we have is that we are united with Jesus. I'm not hoping in my good works. I'm not hoping that God is a God who just passes over wrongdoings. I'm hoping in the fact that by faith I am united to Jesus. That that when we come to Him we repent and we believe we are forgiven our sins because we are united with Jesus in His death. That when He dies we die. That we die to sin. And our penalty, our, our debt towards sin is paid for because Jesus has died. And when he raises, we are raised with him to new life. We are given new life. That's my hope. I don't have any hope apart from that, but I am raised with him. And then, in his ascension, I am united with him and I am raised with him into the heavenlies to this place of glorification and exaltation and power. And one day when he returns... I will meet him in the air, and I will ascend even as he has ascended fully. I will be resurrected in a fuller sense, and I will know who he is. We will know him even as we are known. Even now, we are seated in the heavenlies, and at death or at his return, we will know the full reality of that glorification. So that's the power that Jesus takes and gives Finally, our our worship and joy in the Ascension is found in the mission that Jesus entrusts or gives, if you just want to use that, the mission Jesus entrusts or gives. Jesus leaves, but the whole feel of this and the whole feel of, of Acts 1 is that the mission is not over. In many ways, it's just beginning, isn't it? Jesus has taught them everything that they need to know. Now he says, I'm going to give you the Spirit because I'm leaving. Once I leave, now I can give you the Spirit and you will have everything that you need to accomplish the task that I have given you. He doesn't call us to do anything that he doesn't equip us for. He equips us for this mission of proclaiming a message of repentance and of forgiveness. And what is their response? They are thrilled. We can look at this mission, this call to what we call evangelism, or to proclaim the message of repentance and faith, and it's like something that's painful, isn't it? I don't have to worry about this. It's it's difficult. It's it's hard. But for the disciples, this the, the reign of Jesus as the Messiah King and their role as his ambassadors into the world is what they have been longing for. This is what they want to do. In many ways, aren't they vindicated? Because they were... They were seen as fools for so long. Why are you following this guy? And then when Jesus is crucified, they feel like fools. We we invested our lives in this guy, and he was a fraud. He was a fake. He wasn't the Messiah. But when he raises to life again and says, okay, guys, now your job is to tell everyone that through repentance and faith they can be forgiven of all their sins. What's their response? Let's do it. We are so We'll wait in this room until the power comes, and when the power comes, we will tell anyone and everyone. Threat of death doesn't matter. We'll die for Christ because we want to tell everyone the good news. They were right, and now they get the privilege of being the first heralds of this message. I think for us that we need to think about that task in the same way, don't we? That we are given the privilege as witnesses. Remember, we are witnesses of these things, just as the disciples were. We are witnesses of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And now we are called to proclaim a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. We are called to tell others that just as Jesus ascended, there will come a day when He returns and He descends. He will break through the clouds. Everyone will see His glory. And He's going to come and He will judge the living and the dead. He will redeem those who are united to Christ by faith and he will condemn to outer darkness all who have rejected him as king. And this is the message that we are called to proclaim. It should fill us with joy. It shouldn't be a burden that we have to tell other people that if you turn from sin, you can know forgiveness so that when Jesus comes, you will be united with him. That's not a burden to us. It's hard. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But is there a way that we can step into situations with co-workers, with family, with friends, and with joy say, if you turn from sin, if you put your faith in Christ, then you will know the forgiveness of sins. We proclaim it to those that we know. We proclaim it Sunday by Sunday from this pulpit. And this morning we proclaim it through the bread and through the cup. Isn't that what Jesus tells us to do? We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming this message that should fill us with joy and worship. And it's the message that we are united to Christ. That when Jesus' body is broken and torn, that that is broken and torn for our sin. That when his blood is spilled, it is spilled because of our sin. And we are united to him in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension, that's how we have life, is by being united with Christ. I think, too, it's good to think what we saw on the road to Emmaus when they were in that room and Jesus is revealed in the breaking of bread. Jesus is revealed to us in a unique way when we take the bread and we take the cup. He's given us this for a specific reason. He's given us a tangible thing to put in our mouths to drink because it reminds us of who he is and what he has done for us. It reminds us that one day He will return. I think so much that's what the cup is. What does Jesus say about that last cup? I won't drink it again until I return. And so we look to the day that He will return. All of that is tied up in this meal and as we take it, we proclaim Christ.